would like to mention that the Communist Party of Great Britain Marxist-Leninist is setting a wondrous example for the movement as a whole because not only the chair but the two vice chairs are all female, our entire executive. <laughs> uh, but this was just because we were brilliant, it wasn't for any other reason. <laughs> so let me um, uh, tell you about International Women's Day. Um, this is on the 8th of March and the original one was the 8th of March, uh, 1911. So, uh, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, I actually prepared this speech, I think I, uh, for the Stalin Society, on uh, what International Women's Day was about. And uh, since I was given exactly three days' notice, <laughs> oh, I wonder if I've written anything useful. And I was quite, I've surprised myself. So forgive me if I read to you, but I'll try, if, if I'm not reading very well, just stop me and I'll, and then you can say slower, faster, or whatever you feel is necessary. Um, now, the reason that uh, it's an important day for the, in the working class calendar, March the 8th, is explained by Stalin. Uh, Stalin wrote that not a single great movement of the oppressed in the history of mankind has been able to do without the participation of working women. Working women, the most oppressed among the oppressed, never have or could stand aside from the broad path of the liberation movement. The movement of slaves has produced, as is known, hundreds and thousands of martyrs and heroines. Tens of thousands of working women were to be found in the ranks of the fighters for the liberation of the serfs. It's not surprising that millions of working women have been drawn in beneath the banners of the revolutionary movement of the international, uh, sorry, of the working class, the most powerful of all liberation movements of the oppressed masses. So International Women's Day is a token of invincibility and an augury of the great future which lies before the liberation movement of the working class. Working women, workers and peasants are the greatest reserve of the working class. This reserve constitutes a good half of the population. The fate of the proletarian movement the victory or defeat of the proletarian revolution, the victory of, or defeat of proletarian power depends on whether or not the reserve of women will be for or against the working class. That's why the first task of the proletariat and its advanced detachment, the Communist Party, is to engage in decisive struggle for the freeing of women workers and peasants from the influence of the bourgeoisie, for political education, and the organization of women workers and peasants beneath the banner of the proletariat. International Women's Day is a means of winning the women's labor reserves to the side of the proletariat. Working women aren't only reserves, however. They can and must become, if the working class carries out a correct policy, a real army of the working class operating against the bourgeoisie. The second and decisive task of the working class is to forge an army of worker and peasant women out of the women's labor reserves to operate shoulder to shoulder with the great army of the proletariat. International Women's Day must become a means for turning worker and peasant women from a reserve of the working class into an active army in the liberation movement of the proletariat.
So rather different from the feminists, I think you'll agree. Um, enormous... <clears throat> enormous advances have been made among almost throughout the world uh, since the first celebration of International Women's Day held on the 19th of March, 1911. 19th of March? Why was it the 19th of March? <laughs> it was actually only later that the date was changed to the 8th of March. We have only to look at the demands of women at that time. A million people, a million, in Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland attended rallies on that date to campaign for a woman's right to work, in paid employment, to vote and to hold public office. Uh, it was Clara Zetkin, a leading German socialist, who first tabled the idea of an International Women's Day at the Second International Conference of Working Women, which was held in Copenhagen in 1910. Now, this conference was held in the aftermath of a successful end to a prominent and bitter struggle of some 70,000 US United States garment workers in New York. The workforce was predominantly, i.e. 70% female. Two thirds of the women workers were Jewish, most of East European origin, and a third were of Italian origin. Uh, many had had uh, connections with the Bund, which was a Jewish socialist organization and which had given them experience of conducting strikes in Germany. So faced with general strike, the employers, with the backing of the forces of the state, resorted to vicious, vicious dismissals, mass arrests, manhandling, and convictions to terms in the workhouse. Led, but led by the fiery and courageous Ukrainian woman, Clara Lemlich, who set an example to other strikers by returning to the picket line after company goons had broken three of her ribs. And the workers stood firm and the employers eventually, faced with the approach of the most profitable season for the garment trade, finally backed down. The gains that the women made uh, were that the work week was cut to 52 hours. Previously, it had been between 65 and 75. Uh, de uh, depending on the time of year. The workers were given uh, four days holiday with pay. Employers were required to supply all tools necessary for the job. Previously, women had to bring their own needles, their own thread, their own and their own sewing machines. And a grievance committee was established to deal with individual issues that came up. However, the gains of this successful strike extended far beyond the factory gates. They extended beyond the borders of the United States. It energized and encouraged the working class movement all over the world, particularly by highlighting the militant potential of women workers. It helped male workers to see that working women deserved equality and it helped them to overcome prejudiced beliefs uh, engendered by the very fact of women's subservience in class society uh, to the effect that you know, women are in inferior positions because they are inferior. You know, this would be the assumption that's made. Um, and it was unnecessarily divisive for the working class movement. Uh, is very often the unions will say, well, you know, there's no great demand for women to have equal pay, so let's focus <coughs> on what's achievable. 
Um, so that attitude began to get countered by what the ladies had achieved in New York. Uh, as Stalin's quotation that I've just given you makes quite clear, um, the very success of the revolution depends on mobilizing the forces of the entire proletariat, a task which would be impossible if the legitimate and pressing demands of half the working class, i.e. the women, uh, were ignored. So it was in these circumstances that in 1910, at a second international conference of working women held in Copenhagen, attended by over 100 women from 17 countries, representing unions, socialist parties and working women's clubs, Clara Zetkin, a prominent member of the German Social Democratic Party, a communist party in those days, uh, proposed that every year in every country uh, there should be a celebration of the same day, a women's day, to press for their demands. And her proposal was enthusiastically adopted by all, all present. Um, now, Russian women had already had a long and honorable history of struggle against czarist oppression and inhuman working conditions. And they eagerly took up the call for celebrating International Women's Day, even though uh, it was illegal under Sardom to, for them to do so. They marked their first International Women's Day on what was for them the last uh, sun, sat Sunday in February. Uh, but this date was the date in the Julian, in the Julian calendar, which was out of date. And everywhere else which was on the Gregorian calendar, and it was actually the 8th of March. Um, the Russian women used the occasion to publish articles, making whatever use they could of, of legal possibilities. Um, and a public meeting was called by women Bolsheviks at the Kalashaski Exchange in Petrograd to discuss the woman question. And although the meeting was illegal, the venue was packed out and a lively discussion ensued until the meeting was raided by the police and many of the speakers were arrested. But the Bolsheviks continued to give great importance to promotion of the demands of women and to support the celebrations of International Women's Day every year. Um, in 1914, under the editorship of Krupskaya, that's uh, Lenin's wife, the first issue of The Woman Worker, Robert, Robotnica, I suppose it is, a journal for working class women, <coughs> began to be published. Along with Iskra, The Woman Worker was printed abroad and smuggled into Russia for widespread distribution. At the same time, the Bolsheviks decided to create a special committee to organize meeting for International Women's Day to be held in factories and public places to discuss issues related to women's oppression and to elect representatives from those uh, who had participated in the discussions. Um, and then uh, the, these meetings would also set out the plan for, of work for the committees in question. Um, and it really can't be overemphasized how important this work turned out to be for the success of the Great October Revolution itself. Um, it's not for nothing that the Tsarist secret police reported to the Ministry of the Interior in January 17. Mothers of families, exhausted by endless standing in line at stores, 
distraught over their half-starving and sick children, are today perhaps closer to revolution than the liberal op opposition. And of course, they're a great deal more dangerous because they are the combustible material for which only a single spark is needed to burst into flames. On International Women's Day 1917, the year of the revolution, yeah, workers, including women workers in textile and metalworking industries, went on strike in St. Petersburg. The most prominent issue behind the protests was opposition to Russia's participation in the imperialist war. The war had made Russian women even more of a force to be reckoned with. Natasha Samoylova, a founding editor of Pravda and an activist in the Baku oil fields, wrote that the war had torn thousands of women away from housework and thrown them into the factories in place of their husbands to earn their daily bread. That war undoubtedly gave impetus to the political consciousness of women workers and compelled them to take a more active part in the overall struggle of the working class for liberation. So on March the 8th, February the 23rd, on the Julian calendar, so women in their thousands poured onto the streets to demand bread and peace, the return of the men from the trenches. This set off the February Revolution, the abdication of the Tsar, the establishment of the provisional government uh, to implement the democratic demands of the revolutionary masses. So the new government made the franchise universal and recognized equal rights for women. So subsequent to these momentous events, March the 8th as International Women's Day became official in 1921 when Bulgarian women attending the International Women's Secretariat of the Communist International uh, proposed a motion that it be uniformly celebrated around the world on this day. And March the 8th was chosen to honor the role played by the Russian women in the revolution in their country and through their actions in the struggle of women for their emancipation internationally. And Azerbaijan, Belarus, Bulgaria, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Macedonia, Moldova, Mongolia, Tajikistan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan and Vietnam <coughs> all celebrate officially International Women's Day. But after the October Revolution, uh, this provisional government, which existed from February to October 1917, um, had granted universal uh, franchise and declared women's equal rights. And this was enough for the bourgeois ladies, but who continued to join their menfolk in continuing to support the imperialist war that was wreaking such appalling hardship of the mass of workers and peasants. And the failure of this provisional government to extract Russia from the war uh, sealed its fate and set the scene for the success of the October Revolution. The grant of these minimal formal rights, uh, astonishingly, astonishingly advanced at the time, didn't satisfy the Bolsheviks when they came to power. They were committed to eliminating not just the formal aspects of women's subservience to men, but also the whole gamut of conditions that give rise to that subservience in the first place. Um, before 1917, some countries had made some concessions towards women's formal equality. Um, for instance, Finland had given 
the right of women to be elected to its parliament and had three women MPs uh, who actually attended the 1910 Women's Conference in Copenhagen. But no country could match the comprehensive abolition of all laws discriminating against women that the Bolshevik government implemented following the October Revolution. They introduced divorce and civil marriage laws which made marriage a voluntary alliance. They abolished all distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children. They gave women employment rights equal to those of men, equal pay for equal work. Uh, this is a concept introduced in the UK in 1970. 1917 in the Soviet Union, 1970 in the UK, uh, following uh, in the UK, some of us are old enough to remember <laughs> that the Equal Pay Act followed the strike of women machinists at Ford's in Dagenham. Um, and uh, so again, it was legislation that the women fought for and, and, and gained. Uh, and there is a wonderful film, yes, uh, Made, in Made in Dagenham, which uh, you can look up to, to see what, <laughs> what it was like in those days. Anyway, they were also given right to paid leave during pregnancy and um, after the birth of children. It was decades before any bourgeois country caught up. And even then, the implementation of these laws in bourgeois countries could never match the thoroughness with which they were implemented in the USSR. But the Bolsheviks weren't satisfied with passing these laws. They also undertook a vast array of measures to ensure that women could enjoy equality in practice. This meant not only ensure, ensuring that jobs were equally available to, uh, to men and women, but that women were able to catch up, despite the fact they were mostly far more uneducated than the men were. The literacy campaign undertaken by the Bolsheviks uh, was able to put an end to Russia's prevalent illiteracy uh, in a very short period of time. And it was a major factor enabling women to come into their own. On the one hand, they could read to find out about their new rights and to learn of positive examples set by other women in various parts of the country. And on the other hand, the ability to read opened the door to more advanced education and to skilled and intellectual jobs. The party also battled hard against prejudice and discrimination by people who'd never had the opportunity to experience for themselves the sight of women doing perfectly competently uh, what had hitherto always been male jobs. Uh, with a view to sweeping away such prejudice as quickly as possible, there was a policy of positive discrimination in favour of women uh, requiring women to be offered any job ahead of any male candidate with equivalent qualifications. So if a male candidate and a woman candidate were equal, the woman got the job. Um, in the countryside, the lot of peasant women changed drastically in the collective farms uh, because the collective farms paid all workers individually according to how much work they did. So a farm woman, a peasant woman, ceased to be dependent on her husband's income that in the past had delivered into his hands the fruits of all her labour simply because he was the one who owned the land. Um, and then the fact that the burden of housework traditionally had always fallen on women whether or not they worked in the home and this obviously always diminished the contribution that women could make either to labour 
or to participation in political life. So the Bolsheviks led a major effort to produce as many social facilities as possible to lift the heavy burden of housework off the shoulders of the women. They built creches, kindergartens, nurseries um, to provide for the care of children and of excellent quality and very affordably priced. You know, the mother had to feel that the care that the child would get in the nursery was at least as good as what it would have had at home with mum. Then public dining rooms were set up for workers and their families so women didn't have to cook every day. And uh, men were also encouraged with varying success, it says, uh, to take up some share of the remaining housework. <laughs> anyway, one way or another, the Soviet Union revolutionised the women's position. Uh, women were introduced en masse into the professions and trades that they'd never been considered capable of undertaking. And by the 70s, three quarters of Soviet doctors were women. And this was at a time when in Western imperialist countries, most people's stereotype of a doctor was uncompromisingly male. I'd, you know, I, I remember around about that time, um, I was in some class or other where we were presented with a dilemma. And this was as follows. Um, a man and his son are traveling in a car and they're involved in an accident and the man's killed outright. The child is, the boy is badly injured and rushed to hospital, rushed into the operating theater and the surgeon on duty takes one look at him and says, oh my God, it's my son. How can it be? How can it be? And honestly, people would sit there and not be able, they'd be able work out all sorts of complicated scenarios and even I found it difficult and my bloody mother was a doctor. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is how these stereotypes fix themselves in your brain. <laughs> the doctor is always male. Right? The doctor is always male, the surgeon in particular is always male <laughs> and of course that's a, I don't think people would have that now, not, not if they'd been watching Holby City. <laughs> But all the same, um, in the 70s, it was definitely the case. That was hardly anybody came up with the correct answer on it. You wouldn't believe, but anyway, there you are. So the introduction of women into every male preserve was done in the Soviet Union decades before the capitalist countries followed suit, um, as well as more thoroughly than any capitalist country has ever done. Um, to this day, uh, British and American professional women complain of the glass ceiling, which prevents most of them reaching the highest echelons of their profession. Uh, but, you know, this wasn't an issue in Soviet Russia, where there were any number of women in, in top positions. Um, at the same time, the skill of jobs that had traditionally been regarded as women's work um, had, by association, acquired low status like nurses, low status, although it's a highly skilled job because women did it. Um, and low status, badly paid. Um, and Mandel, somebody called William Mandel, um, who visited the Soviet Union, wrote a book in 1975 talking about the milkmaid. The milkmaid was considered somebody pretty lowly. But in a collective farm, he said, 
which involves feeding, uh, you know, the job of the milkmaid involves feeding and care of the animals and their calves as well as milking. It's a new job arising out of the real history of farming and of culture in a real country. Champion milkmaids are awarded the country's highest honor, the, hero of the, t the title of hero of socialist labor. They're elected to Congress. In old Russia, men worked with the draft animals as women did with producing livestock. So today, men are virtually all the operators of farm machinery, despite 40 years of real effort on the government's part to involve women in that work. But milkmaids usually earn more than tractor drivers, and that's because animal care is harder work under Russia's present conditions. Um, and so earnings do have a lot to do with one's prestige, <laughs> he says. But um, by the time women, William Mandel was writing his book in 75, women in the USSR were in a majority <coughs> among the employed graduates. And it's therefore no accident that the first woman in space as early as 1963 was? Tereshkova. Valentina Tareshkova, that's right. Uh, she was the daughter of peasants who had been the poorest of the poor before collectivization. Um, at the time, it was unheard of in Western countries for women ever, uh, e so even to be pilots of anything other than light planes, you know, let alone test pilots. And after Soviet women had blazed the trail, one woman in the US was elevated to the position of a second officer in a scheduled airline, but not until 10 years after Tereshkova's flight. <coughs> And another sphere, largely closed to Western women, uh, always exceptions to prove the rule, but largely closed, was navigation. You know, every kind of prejudice made it impossible for them to aspire to imitate the example of Captain Anna Shetinina, who was the master of a 20,000-ton freighter, or Captain Valentina Olikova, who in 1956 was given command of a large refrigerator ocean fishing trawler with a crew of 90. Um, you know, that's one of these things that even today, ship's captain, man, <laughs> uh, but not in, not in the Soviet Union. Uh, a high proportion of women admirals, so where am I? Since those days, the US Navy has hastened to appoint a certain number of women to the highest positions, and a, but a high proportion of women admirals are medical personnel rather than navigators or commanders of ships. But the first woman to be put in command of a US Navy cruiser was a lady called Captain Holly Graf, and she achieved that position in 2003. But in 2010, she was out on her ear uh, after displays it playing what was called inappropriate behavior. And when you look at what she was doing, it's classically consistent with um, the effect of having been subjected to long-term low-grade bullying. And so when her ship um, shuddered, without it seeing it, shuddered as though it had hit run aground, her crew started clapping and cheering to show how happy they were that her career would end as a result. Um, but Mandel's book gives countless examples of Soviet women in positions of the highest responsibility, directors of scientific establishments, college principals, hydraulic project managers, hospital managers, top flight medical consultants, etc., etc. A lady called Maria Volodina was in charge eight hours a day of distributing electrical power 
throughout all the territory between Poland and Siberia. Uh, just at the same time, in Colorado, USA, a construction crew walked off the job when for the first time in the history of the industry, a woman engineer entered a tunnel while work was in progress. <laughs> that was the difference. In the USSR in the early 70s, one third of all judges were women. In 74, in the UK, Rose Heilbronn became only the second female High Court judge. At the time of the 100th anniversary of the International Women's Day in 2010, in the UK, women were only about 10% of the judges appointed to the High Court, and they had up to then only been 20 in total. Uh, nowadays, they've managed to struggle up to uh, 26% for High Court judges, but uh, slow but steady, no doubt. So in the USSR, women's work received the highest honours, including when they were working in areas that previously had been men's exclusive preserve. Mandel noted that nominations for state prizes in the early 70s included nominations for women working in the fields of earthquake geography, English literature, thermodynamics, automotive engineering, steel mill engineering, and computer design and development. Uh, furthermore, in the USSR in 75, uh, more female engineers, uh, it had more female engineers than the rest of the world combined. They were greater in number than male engineers in the US, and of course far outnumbered US women engineers, who at that time were only 2% of the total. In the USSR, they were 30% of the total. Uh, but at the same time, they constituted 38%, 38% of engineering students, uh, laying the basis for, in the future, being a higher proportion among the uh, working uh, engineers. So if we zoom ahead to the UK in the early 21st century, we find that although in professions such as medicine and law, women rapidly caught up with men after the passing of the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act, uh, horizontally, that is, uh, not vertically, there aren't, still aren't very many women at the top. Um, the same can't be said of science and engineering, which today in bourgeois countries still persist as virtual male preserves. Professor Juliette Glover of Surrey University researched the situation and found that um, in engineering and science-related areas of employment, women's representation remains persistently low. While in ITEC, that's Information Technology, Electronics and Telecommunications, it was actually uh, decreasing at one time. Only about 20% of A-level science students were female, and only 35% of mathematics students. In 1973, in the UK, only 3% of engineering undergraduates were female, and the proportion of females... Um, sorry, by 2000, this had re reached to 12%, while students of physics and computing didn't increase in pro uh, than the proportion of females from around 20% 20 in all that quarter of a century. So... Few though the engineering women, the women engineering students were, and small though the number was who entered scientific or engineering employment, um, 
half of the women who entered these employments then dropped out uh, as soon as they had families. Uh, and presumably because they found it such jolly hard going. So the position's been slowly improving, but the percentages continue to remain low, particularly in computing science, where it hasn't reached even 20%. And overall, the percentage of female graduates with the core science, technology, engineering, mathematics degrees is still 26%. Uh, and in the workforce, they're 24%. And, and that's so many, so many years after the Bolshevik Revolution. Ah, but anyway, and Mandel wrote that by 59, one third of all crane, derrick and forklift operators were women. In their mother's generation, only one such job in 100 was held by a woman. In the earlier year, one street driver in 30 was a woman, but by 1959, women were a majority of those in control of these vehicles, trolley buses and subway trains. Actually, 10 years ago, you hardly ever saw a woman bus driver, but they're very common now, aren't they? And you mm -hmm. occasionally spot a woman um, subway driver. Mm -hmm. yeah. So things do change, but they change because of the example that was set by the USSR. You know, otherwise there would have been no motivation to change anything at all. Right, Engels showed in his Origin of the Family that the inferior status of women in all societies existing at the time that he was writing, it wasn't due to women being inferior to men in any way, but to the fact that under class society, they'd been stripped of their independent economic role to be confined in the home as a chattel of their husbands with no role other than to perform household chores and bear children. And they, they were totally financially dependent on their husbands for their every need. So class society condemned them to this inferiority by depriving them of education quite often and of all opportunity to develop and put to work their underlying talents. And from this, Engels drew the natural conclusion that once they were returned to social production and became economically independent of their husbands, the basis would be laid for their emancipation. And he and Marx had already noted how the status of working class women had risen within the family as a result of their having been drawn back into the social production, into the factories by greedy capitalists uh, keen to exploit their cheap labor. Um, but he also showed how full emancipation was held back by the fact that by tradition, they had this massive burden of domestic drudgery to bear on top of the work they had to do you know, uh, to earn their pin money. Um, but because the Soviet Union was committed to securing the full emancipation of women, every effort was made to ensure the availability of creches, kindergartens, public dining rooms, public laundry services, maternity benefits, flexible working hours, so that women could genuinely be free to participate on, uh, on an equal basis, both in work and in social life. Um, on this front, capitalist countries have always lagged behind the Soviet Union, little chance of their catching up. Uh, you know, to the extent there are social facilities at all, they tend to be either terrible, think old people's homes, or financially beyond the reach of all but the best paid, the nurseries, kindergartens, and decent restaurants that provide healthy food. 
um, sometimes both. And the only relief from back-breaking drudgery for women under capitalism is provided by technological developments which provide labour-saving household devices such as washing machines, refrigerators and vacuum cleaners. They're wonderful. <laughs> but gradually, husbands are taking a share of the household chores. But compared to the kind of social provision, especially for the care of children and the elderly that was available in the USSR, um, gadget-wielding husbands and wives <laughs> still have a heavy burden to bear um, and are often forced to leave children in the care of the television set or the iPad uh, far more than is recognised to be physically, intellectually or morally good for them. Um, the introduction of market socialism in the USSR, uh, while it was still way ahead of the capitalist competition in the West in mobilising female labour, nevertheless hampered progress in the USSR to full equality. You see, when, when the aim of production ceases to be to satisfy to the maximum possible extent workers' material, cultural and spiritual needs, and, and instead it becomes the generation of maximum profit, then, you know, providing workers with social facilities, ooh, that's an overhead that's best avoided, really, isn't it? So social facilities begin to wither away for much the same reason that they're barely provided in capitalist countries. And as a result, the process of the emancipation of women in the USSR began to slow down significantly uh, when the market socialism was introduced, uh, or began to be introduced in the late 50s. Um, but nevertheless, by the time, um, by the 1970s, they had an earning potential that had reached three quarters that of men. So, as we celebrate the 112th anniversary of International Women's Day, uh, it has to be admitted that the cause of women's liberation has advanced beyond anything that women could ever have dreamt of in 1910, and that it is the great and glorious Soviet Union which led the way and which went furthest along that path. You know, by demonstrating that anything men could do, women could do too, the Soviet Union established that there wasn't a single branch of social production that couldn't be open to women. Even capitalists in these circumstances, if painstakingly, uh, were able to break with tradition and start employing women in all kinds of jobs in which they'd never been seen before. Um, they were obviously given the incentive that they, to start with they only had to pay low wages because the male wages basically were supposed to cover the whole family, including the wife. And so anything that the wife earned was extra. Didn't, she didn't need to earn as much as a man did. Um, but gradually, of course, uh, this has uh, ended up with the family wage being divided between the man and the woman, and basically the capitalists getting two workers for the price of one. Um, but... Uh, and both men and women having to do household chores on top of their jobs. But in spite of that, uh, women are much freer, uh, much better off. They have independent incomes. It makes them possible to leave a loveless marriage. They don't have to tolerate uh, bullying and violence against either themselves or their children. They have access to education to a far greater extent. 
and they're able to engage in work that's a lot more stimulating and satisfying than household drudgery. Uh, they still have a long way to go. Working class women in particular need access to social facilities to make their lives bearable, to enable them to give their children the best start in life as they deserve so that society as a whole can benefit from people whose potential is fully developed in childhood. So as the crisis deepens, the situation of women is becoming worse, not better. Uh, those few areas in which women could find some, some support are being ruthlessly cut. Taxation rises, wages plunge, and unemployment rises. Um, it's time to take up cudgels again in the fashion of the New York garment workers, and more particularly in the women of the Soviet Union's revolutionary proletariat. Experience shows it's only under socialism that women's needs can really be given priority. It's only under socialism that the whole of production is geared to serving the needs of working people in general, rather than the interests of profit. Uh, that always grudges every penny spent on wages and social facilities. Women workers must stand shoulder to shoulder with the revolutionary proletariat as a whole to overthrow capitalism and establish and build socialism. And it stands to reason that the revolutionary proletariat must always put attending to the needs of the working class woman as one of its most urgent priorities, both in their demands of the working class, of the capitalist class rather, and in the measures that they implement as soon as they see state power. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.